We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 19 and chapter 20. There was no way to really tear those apart. So it's 66 verses today. So I'm going to read a couple of slides and we're going to talk about some stuff and then we're going to keep moving through. And I promise Kevin and I this week, we worked on just being really concise with what we needed to say. So I think God has a word for us this morning. Uh, and I'm praying that Holy Spirit works in your heart and, and, and confirms what his, his word is saying, uh, here in first and second or in first Samuel 19 and 20. And, and that you'll be able to learn from this and move forward as a, as a person. Because each one of us, we got to acknowledge each one of us is a leader. We're leader in our families. We're leaders in our communities. We're leaders at work. And, and so it's really important to understand that we as leaders have been called uh, to learn from leaders in the past, the mistakes that they've made so that we don't make them. And then also the things that they've done well, learn from those and try to mimic those or do those in our own lives. And so um, trials, Kevin and I, as we were, were talking this week, trials really have been uh, a great um, vehicle for growth in both of our lives. As we went through things that are tough, we've been able to learn things that we do well under pressure in the midst of a trial. We can go, okay, this is the right way to respond to that. And, and I want to keep growing in that. We've also responded. And when I say we, I'm just talking because we had a lot of the time this week to talk about these things. Uh, so I, I could say this just about myself. I've also responded in ways that are poor, uh, and, and, and I learned from those like, Hey, next time you're going through, even if you feel justified, that's probably not the best way to respond. So you learn a lesson from that too. Uh, and, and so we saw that uh, a little bit in this, this story that we're going to be looking at today. Um, this kind of good and bad relationships, and if you were here last week, you might be saying, wait a second, uh, this is just friend versus foe 2.0. And, and in some ways it kind of is, but there's some new things to look at, some new things to learn. Uh, and that's what we've seen. We've seen David's relationship with Jonathan and we've seen David's relationship with Saul. And in all of this, in light of Samuel anointing David as the new king, but Saul not moving over and getting out of the way, uh, again, we really truly feel that this great growth that David sees in his life during this 20-year period uh, comes because of delayed deliverance. So how often in your life have you been in the midst of a trial uh, or a struggle or a learning opportunity and gone, Lord, why have you not done X, Y, or Z? Whatever it would take to, to make everything better. I mean, how many times have you said that? I know I have. And yet we see here through David's life that sometimes the growth takes time. And so delayed deliverance is God's idea. And I think if that's true for David, it's got to be true for you and I today. And so as we look at these two chapters, ask yourselves, what can I learn from God not delivering me immediately from this trial, right? What, what can I learn from that that will help me grow into the man or woman that God has called you to be. So today we're going to look at great growth often means delayed deliverance. So let's dive right into 1 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, and we'll have, like I said, we'll have the words up here on the screen for you. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. 
But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And I, if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So let's pause there just for a second. David is entering into a 20-year season, like I just said to you, of kind of being hunted by Saul. So he's entered into this incredibly difficult season in his life. He's going to grow, but it isn't, he's not going to see deliverance anytime soon. This is at the beginning of the 20 years. You got to remember, Saul's already hurled the spear at David multiple times, right? Saul has tried to personally kill David. And yet David wanting to be faithful to God has stuck around because that's what God has told him to do. All we've seen from David so far here is is this faith that he has in the Lord. And the Lord had used Samuel to anoint him as the next king. And he has this faith in God that allowed him to go up against the Philistine. Not because he thought he could beat the giant. Not because he wanted all the things that were promised to him by Saul. But because the giant was blaspheming God. was, Was making little of God. And David said no. Why would no other man step up and take out this guy? I've got God on my side. Whether I live or die, I'm going to stand up for what I believe. And he went out against the giant. And it was incredible. So he was faithful to God. But he also was faithful to King Saul. David obviously being younger, we can guesstimate Saul's probably 65 at this time. David's in his 20s, early 20s. He's been anointed king. He could have done some shady things to try to gather men around him to maybe even have a little coup to take over, but he was faithful to Saul. Every time Saul asked him to do something, David stepped up and did it. So David is showing a faithfulness to God and a faithfulness to Saul. And and, and the the job that he's doing, we've seen, he always does well. God blesses him him in it. And and in some ways, you got to ask yourself, Was David doing too good of a job? Is that what was frustrating Saul? Was Saul seeing this? And and again, as he's trying to hold on to power, was he worried that that might slip away because of that? The fact is that Saul had been rejected by God. We know that from quite a few chapters ago. And God told Saul, you're no longer my chosen. I'm going to raise up someone else. David's been anointed by God. and, And again, that has given Saul just this motivation in his life to take David out, to murder him. And he's already tried multiple times in your Christian life. You and I will find that sometimes simply 
aligning yourself with God, being a Christian, claiming the name of Christ will make you public enemy number one. Sometimes that happens in your own family. Sometimes that happens in your neighborhood or, you know, the community as a whole. Sometimes that'll happen at work. And yet we need to be able to stand up for the truth about God, even if that makes us public enemy number one. We need to be able to stand up and say, this is God's truth. Uh, if somebody's speaking against God, will we stand up to them in a way that honors God? So humility and truth and respect. And yet, like David, say, no, I won't allow you to move forward in those lies. Jesus said when he was on this earth, he said, in this world, you will have troubles. But take heart because I've overcome the world. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, the promise of troubles is part of what you've accepted. The promise of trials, of pain, of hurt, it all comes with it. And yet Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So no matter what you're going through right now, you can have faith in your God, just like David did. Sometimes God will deliver you from whatever that trial might be, whether it's hatred or lies about you or, or pain in your life caused uh, by this world. He'll, he'll deliver you immediately or, or extremely quickly uh, in light of the situation. And you can say, praise God for that. Right? But not a lot of lessons are necessarily learned. Maybe your faith is bolstered. But sometimes, like in David's case, it might be the long haul that you have to get ready for. The reality is, uh, uh, allowing ourselves to suffer in a proper way, keeping God in front of us, will allow us to grow. And, and God will do remarkable things in our life. He, he will give us a unique and powerful testimony. We'll be able to stand at the end of that trial, at the end of our lives, and say, look back, I see God's fingerprints throughout my, my story. And that's what he wants to do in our lives, just like when we read the story of David, we continually see God come through for him. He wants to do those same things for you. So great growth often means delayed deliverance. Let's move on. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. I don't know why they keep letting him sit on the throne with this spear. It doesn't make any sense to me. But David was playing the liar, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped into the night. So Jonathan's words that we were just talking about in the first few verses only swayed Saul for a short period of time. David goes out, he does another campaign, he's successful, right? The Philistines are defeated again and then here we go again. Another attempted murder. The third time at least towards David. This is ridiculous. It's so sad. Let's keep moving on though. Um, Saul sent messengers to David. Uh, to his house to watch him. Okay. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. That he might kill him in the morning. So you could replace messengers with assassins. 
I mean, it really, that's what this means. ESV does a great job translating all the time, including here, but you got to realize what they're talking about is somebody going there to kill David. So, um, they wanted to kill him in the morning, but Michael, David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it out in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers or assassins to take David, she said, he is sick. Now, that reminded me a little bit of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, if you've seen that movie, right? That's what I thought of. I saw a few of you smile, so you guys remember that too. There's, there, and we'll get to more of the description here in a second, so let's keep going. Then Saul sent messengers, this is the second time, assassins, to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with uh, the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, this is quite the scene here. Uh, as Michael, David's wife, saves David, right? Now, I mean, this is Saul's daughter that he had promised. Well, not the one he had promised, but the one that he ended up giving her or giving him. Um, but this is Saul's daughter saves David. Right, And she tries to dissuade the assassins. Oh, he's sick. You know, he's sick in there. Don't, you know, he can't come and talk to Saul right now. He's, he's not feeling well. Leave him alone, right? But that doesn't work. Saul says, go grab the bed and bring the bed to me. Right? Saul is, is ready to get this thing done. Well, when they bust into the house, however they get in past Michael, they find out that this is actually a household idol. So this is an idol dressed up in goat hair, uh, another tried and true method, right, to, to get out of going to school, maybe kids, you could try this, put some pillows or something in there. But they use a household idol, and, and, and so we had to pause for a second and say, what in the world is going on here? Why is there an idol in David and Michael's house? And although it was pretty common in Israel to adopt idols of countries that they had uh, defeated in battle, it was not right. Idolatry was a huge issue for the Israelites. And before you come down too hard on them and say, man, alive, you see God come through for you. Uh, he's, he's winning these battles. Why would you not just destroy all the idols? If you think about it in our lives, we set things up as idols too. Things that become more important than God in our lives, right? And so this happened to be a physical idol. And, and I'm, we're not really sure, as, as Kevin and I were talking about this week, we're not sure if it was Michael's idea or David's idea or, or if it was just kind of a common thing to do, to have in the home. Um, so whether Michael had it and David wasn't really excited about it or whether he approved, we don't know because the author of First Samuel is just giving us facts. But what we do know is idolatry is sin. It's sinful. And, and so David was in sin in this area in his life because he allowed an idol to be in their home, to be in their life. And so even though they don't talk about it a lot, there's, there's just the narrative given, we, we want to pause there and say, hey, a leader should not allow other things to take the place of God, to be set up in a high place in their lives. And so this here, there's not a lot spoken on it 
from the author, but we need to realize that no matter what this idol was, it wasn't appropriate for Dave to have David to have in his home. It, it was sinful to be to be there, and so we want to make sure we take idolatry as as seriously as God does. The author of Samuel just keeps going on, kind of in the editorial uh, mode, especially towards these sorts of things. Um, and you notice at the end of the story that Michael lies to protect David when he's sick. And again, no judgments given whether that's good or bad that she lied to protect David. Again, she's just giving, or the author is just giving us the facts of what's going on. But what we do notice at the very end, she tries to lie for David. The assassins come in. They realize it's just an idol. Then she lies a second time. Here we see lies upon lies. Look at what she says. Uh, I didn't want to die. David was going to kill me. So I, I let him escape. And, and that, that's not what was recorded here. David never threatened her uh, to kill her in this. So we have this idea of, of just one sin building upon another. She lies about David not being there. She then lies about why David was allowed to escape. And this lie that she told she should have known would have enraged her father even more. Because now you have... David, who he already hated, threatening to kill his daughter. So again, truth in our lives, the thing we got to learn, no matter how painful it is, what the consequence is of truth, we got to tell the truth, right? And then, and then correct whatever needs to be uh, corrected in that situation and move forward. If you start lying, pretty soon now you're lying to cover the other lies and so on and so forth. And we see that here. So again, if we're just trying to get these little nuggets throughout the story, we want to see that and grab a hold of that. So, um, if I were David, though, and I was trying to hide from Saul, I probably wouldn't have gone home anyways. That's probably not a great idea. If anybody's looking for me, you guys all know where I live. Come to my house. Uh, you know, if I'm hiding there, it's not a great place to hide, right? So if I was trying to hide, I wouldn't be going home. But David did for some reason, and, and he had to escape this way. So let's see where he goes to escape Saul now as we continue on in chapter 19. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he said to Samuel, uh, and he and Samuel went to live in Naoth. And it was told to Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers, again, to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as the head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers, or assassins, of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told to Saul, he sent another group of messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time. Right? So you count the house. This is four times now that he sent these assassins. But they also prophesied. You see who's in control here. Verses 18 to 21. You see that God is in control and, and his, the power that he has. Uh, verse 22. Then he himself went to Ramah. This is Saul. And came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth uh, in Ramah. And he went up to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he, as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he, too, stripped off his clothes, and he, too, prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul among the prophets." 
This section really stuck out to Kevin and I this week as we were reading. We're like, what is going on here? David sets out. He leaves. He runs from his home. Uh, and, and he goes to find Samuel, the guy who anointed him, the, the, the spiritual leader of Israel. He's getting really, really old. He's in retirement. Um, and we have this king who God never intended for the Israelites to have as, as now the leader. But Samuel is still there. And so he goes to find Samuel. And they go together to to Naoth and, and Saul he shows here that he has a reach that he can find anyone anywhere he finds out where David's at and he starts sending out the assassins to take David out but God proves that he's in control and one group after another is thwarted uh, by this sudden prophesying again we don't know exactly what was said here these could be spiritual truths about God nodding not wanting Israel to have kings that uh, David was now the anointed one not Saul um, or something else we don't know because because it's not said, but God in a supernatural way brings this about. And these groups of assassins start telling truths of God. I mean, this is incredible, right? So Saul says, man alive, I've sent four different groups of assassins. Nobody's been able to get to David. If you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself. So Saul says, man, I got to get going. But look at what God does to him. This is incredible. I mean, this is incredible. A man who has been against God for the last few years in his life because of the sin in his own life and his unwillingness to move aside and let God do what he wanted to do through David, um, he starts prophesying, right? As he's going up to kill David, he's prophesying the entire way. The assassins all get there, then start prophesying. Saul leaves his house and God says, no, we're not letting this happen. And he takes over right then. So two thoughts that we had thought of that were significant here. One is we see that Saul strips himself naked all that day and all that night. Uh, there are some translations that talk about him stripping down to his loincloth. Either way, for the king to strip down... Uh, was not an act that normally would happen out in public. Okay, he has his royal robes on. This would have been uh, a way to humiliate uh, Saul in a way that would bring him down to the common people, if not even below that. This was a shameful thing, uh, and 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 we see that God causes him to do this. But as we were reading this week, if you've been here the last few weeks, it reminded me of Jonathan. Remember what Jonathan did in such a beautiful thing to David? He stripped off his royal robes and gave them to David. So here, Saul's son realizes God's plan, God's will, God's purpose is more important than my father and myself trying to hold on to our power. I am going to strip myself of my royal robes and give that to David. It was a beautiful story a couple chapters ago. Here we see Saul saying, no way. I'm not giving up the throne. I'm trying to kill this guy. I'm going after him. I'm going after him. And God causes him to strip down. It's such a huge contrast between father and son. And yet, and yet, uh, we see that Saul, even in all of his arrogance, uh, was under the control, obviously, of God and God's will. The second thing we saw is, is these prophecies that Saul was, uh, forced to speak. Again, I don't know specifically what they are. We're kind of, um, 
having to guess. And sometimes when you guess, you can, you know, get into some weird things. And we decided not to do that. But what we know is prophecies and the way that it's written about is, is, uh, equal to other prophecies of God that were written. So this is a spirit of God coming upon him and he's speaking forth truths. Right? That's what prophecies are. God's truths. So what I had already talked about through these assassins, same idea. Can you imagine Saul prophesying, speaking truths potentially about that God is the rightful king, that we shouldn't even have kings, that uh, he has been removed, that David has been anointed. Again, I'm speculating. We don't know that for sure, but we see God's hand and God's control in this. And, and that's beautiful. God caused Saul in his arrogance and his anger and his desire to put David to death to speak beautiful truths about God. So let's not forget uh, this story is important. God is in control and we see that here. He's protecting David. He's keeping uh, Saul from killing David and thwarting any sort of godly plans. Uh, and then we see at the end this mocking of is Saul also amongst the prophets? Which the people were saying as he was laying there on the ground, stripped down at least out of his royal robes. Now, I got to be honest, if I'm David and I'm up there with Samuel and I'm seeing Saul in this humble, humiliating way, this, this spot, I would probably want God to take care of him. Like right now, he's on the ground, like cause him to go completely crazy or, or even take him out. Like that's where my brain would go. Why don't you judge Saul now for everything that he's done? Let's, let's finalize this God. And yet God is saving David from death. But he wants David to continue to grow. And so Saul will continue to hunt David down for, like I said, another almost 20 years. We see this and we wonder if David thought, man, this is it. This is, this is where Saul's reign ends. And yet it doesn't. And so again, we see God's timing, not our own timing. And that's an important lesson that we all need to, to know and to learn. What we know that in this story is that God was using this terrible time in David's life to grow him into the leader, right, that he will need to be when he becomes king. And so that's what this story keeps telling us. Great growth often means delayed deliverance. Picking up in chapter 20, verse 1, then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does not either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is it not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, but there is a step between me and death. David is feeling the pressure of Saul coming after him. And he goes to his friend. And Although we've seen the spear fly at David and these assassins sent out, it appears that at least some of this has been kept from Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't know that his dad had been sending out assassin after assassin after assassin. And so David comes to him. He's in this place of, of desperation. And he's like, Jonathan, your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, 
I don't, I don't believe this. I mean, this is hard for me to believe that my dad would want to kill you. You've done nothing but great for Israel and for him. And, and so it's this tough pill for him to swallow. Uh, and yet David says, there's only a step between me and death. Like David, David knows that Saul is right on him. Right. And, and, and we see this truth and, and that he's going through this time. Uh, of, of trials and troubles and, and, and so that he can grow. But David doesn't know this at the time. He just knows he's going through it. And so I'm sure that David, along with Jonathan, wish this wasn't true, but it is. And so they hatch a plan together. So let's take a look at this in verse 4 of chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I might hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say David earnestly asked leave uh, of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he said, if he's angry, then you know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For if you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, but if there is a guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined that my father, that uh, harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards you, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father uh, to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and even more if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety, says Jonathan. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of his enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made, uh, Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now this story, it's beautiful. Uh, Jonathan and David are having this discussion. They come up with this plan. But the, this friendship that they have, this godly friendship we talked about a few weeks ago, is so incredible. We see again Jonathan prioritizing his relationship with God. And ultimately, David over his relationship with his father, who's continuing on in sin. We saw Jonathan respond appropriately by acknowledging who David was and giving him his robes, so on and so forth. So this friendship, again, should stand out to you. We see Jonathan in a really tough spot, right? Saul's his dad. Saul is still king at this moment. Saul believes that Jonathan should be the next king. Jonathan believes in God, trusts God, understands what God is doing, and loves David. Jonathan understands he no longer 
has any power. When Saul ultimately loses a little bit of power that he thinks he has left, Jonathan will be no more in the sense that he will have no royal family or royal power. And here we see Jonathan voice his concern about that. Hey, when we're nothing, remember that I was for you, right? I mean, and that's what friends do. They, they're, they're together. They're figuring this out. And this is a, a beautiful thing. When people turn against you to have godly friends is so important. I hope that if you and when you have gone through the toughest times in your lives, you have had godly friendships that have been there to help you through it, to remind you of spiritual truths, to encourage you to grow, to encourage you to move through whatever you just went through. Toughest times in your lives, uh, it's aided. It's different when you go through with someone like a Jonathan, a friend that believes the best about you. Seeks the truth before making judgments. Uh, doesn't allow hidden sins to go on. In other words, if they see something in you, they're willing to call you out. This is a friend. That's somebody that's tough on you. That's going to say, no, 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 no. You're, you're making some wrong decisions. And are you a good enough friend to hear that and go, okay, I need to at least acknowledge that. And, and here, is this from God? Do I need to be changing some of the things I, that's the kind of friend that Jonathan was. I can't talk about that enough. I mean, it's so incredible. And David has this friend. So there's a covenant made between Jonathan and David here. Uh, Jonathan fears that the sins of his father would kind of cut off his entire family. And David says, no, that's not going to be the case. You're not going to be like any other kingdom or nation or any other enemy of God. But, um, yeah, when, when the Lord takes vengeance on his enemies, you know, don't let me be a part of that. That's what Jonathan was saying. And of course, David agreed with that. Um, David agrees. They swear by their friendship and their love. And then they move on here. Then Jonathan said to him tomorrow, 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 tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed. Because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself uh, when the matter is at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as, I, uh, as though I'm shooting at that mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on the side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for the Lord lives, it is safe for you to return, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food, and the king sat in his seat as at other times, and on the seat by the wall, and Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has come up, or has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day... The day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked, leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for my clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's 
anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your, nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, I don't think I need to tell you what this insult here that uh, Saul just said. I mean, this is one of those really bad insults about your mother uh, that that we don't want to hear, whether you're young and on the playground all the way up through the high school football field and beyond. Saul here is acting in anger and out of control. And he tries to appeal to Jonathan's selfishness if Jonathan were to have that and to his pride by saying you want to be king don't you then David must die so the truth is out there now it's ahead it's before Jonathan knows it there's no hiding it any longer then Jonathan answered his father or Saul his father why should he be put to death what has he done but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So Jonathan is truly righteous here when he says, why should David be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan knew that David had done nothing wrong, but Saul doesn't care. He doesn't care about David's innocence. The only thing that he cares about is the same thing that he carried about all the way back was his throne. Saul saw himself in power and wanted to keep himself there. Now, sadly, Jonathan, his son, gets a dose of the old uh, speary spear, right? That craziness. He throws a spear at his own son. So now he's attempted four times at David here at his son. Jonathan is heartbroken and he's grieved for his friend. The story continues on in the morning. Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him, a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot as the boy. I thought to myself, well, keep him back while you're shooting him. I mean, he's sending him out here while you go out and find these arrows that I'm about to shoot. I'm like, we need some safety here, right? As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. Again, kind of, I mean, not, not the kind of parenting I would be doing here. Uh, and, and when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is the, the arrow not beyond you? In other words, it's gone further. And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick. Do not stray. So Jonathan's boy gathered up all the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city to know that your, your friend will be forced to go into hiding here would grieve any man. And we know that 
Jonathan was that kind of a friend. He was a good friend to David. And so to have to deliver this message to his best friend broke Jonathan's heart. Uh, And we see here again, David trying to please the Lord by bowing in humility to Jonathan. At this point, even though he's been anointed king, he is not in that place yet. And so he wants to give the respect to his friend. He bows three times, understands the risk that Jonathan has put on himself by allowing David to escape. Uh, there's that, there's that personal risk and relational, relational costs that will take place in the, in the king's house. Jonathan would do so, uh, because he wanted to honor God. And he does this with a, a heavy heart, but it's a beautiful thing. The, the fact that Jonathan can say to David, after all of this, go in peace, it's really significant to our big idea, what we've been talking about. By all outside observations, right, if you're looking at this story, there should be a total lack of peace in David's life, right? Your, your home's been ripped away from you, your wife right? That whole family connection to the king. You can't go anywhere in Israel. Everybody knows you. Every time David went out, right? He was successful. The people loved him, right? They all knew him. And if so, if, if the king said, Hey, I'm looking for David, you can't really hide anywhere, but peace or shalom in the Bible does not mean an absence of conflict or turmoil. Did you hear that? When he says go in peace, it's much deeper than just a lack or no turmoil or conflict. It means that despite conflict and turmoil, that there is a deep and abiding sense of the sovereignty of God. David has shown that he has faith in God. And and what Jonathan is saying to him is go in that peace. Your life's going to be rough for a while. We don't know how long, but you can trust in God. This is beautiful. That idea of shalom or peace that the Bible really truly is talking about here. And David will be in this crucible for a long time, 20 plus years, right? Uh, But he and Jonathan seem to understand the truth that we're seeing here. That the growth that God does, I say God does, uh, God-sized growth, right? Not just great growth. God-sized growth in your life often means delayed deliverance. Are you willing to put in the time and to work through that? One of the things that we know is during this time while David was hiding, he wrote a psalm. And I mean, again, after reading 66 verses, the last thing I want to do is read some more. But I'm going to read Psalm 59, which is what David wrote. This is where his heart was uh, as he uh, was in this place. So worship team is going to come up and they're going to get started. Uh, and then after I read this, I'm going to step off the stage. Stand with me if you're able. We'll worship. Uh, communion will be open in the back for those of you that want to take that this morning. But let me read this real quick first as we go back into a time of worship. This is what David penned during this time. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. 
You, Lord, God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look up in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, oh Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that the God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back like howling dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But he closes this, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Now that's growth. That is David growing as a man of God. And he has called you as women and men to follow in those same footsteps, to grow through this delayed deliverance that we might be experiencing in our own lives. So if God tarries and doesn't deliver you quickly, what does your heart do? Does it waver in trust of God? Do you start wondering if God really exists or if he loves you? Or do you grow and grow into the man or woman that God desires for you to be? That would be my prayer for you this week. And I pray that this week, as you think about this, as you think about God's word, that you will be encouraged in that and say, I don't know how long I'll be in the midst of this trial or this trouble, but I will trust in you and I will grow through that. Stand with me if you're able and let's worship God.